Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. Today I'm joined by the Dark Knight himself, Dagan Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> Hi, guys. I'm more of the Light Knight, I think. The Light Knight? That's not, it doesn't sound very cool. The White Knight? <laughs> <laughs> You're a social justice white knight on the internet? <laughs> Dagan, this is the topic that we're going to do today that I actually had a punt on last time. We had a punt on last time we recorded because we ran out of time. Yeah. But this is a fan-chosen topic, and it's the Dark Knight trilogy, the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, which I think are fantastic films and certainly the best superhero movies I've ever seen. Not that I have a not that I have a great experience seeing them all. I've basically <laughs> avoided and dodged as many of these movies as I possibly have could, could, actually. But these movies, to me, are incredibly special. I've talked extensively about my love of them over the past few years. I'm sure we would have gotten to it eventually, but... The fans on CLS's Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand forced our hands. And if you want to vote on topics or submit topic ideas, vote on other people's topic ideas for the show, then support Collins Last Stand on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. We very much appreciate you. You can also get each episode of Knockback early, one week early and ad free. So we appreciate that as well. So as I begin this, we first of all, we got a lot of feedback from the audience because you can also submit questions on Patreon, yes. comments, concerns. So we have a lot of that. But Dagan, when I talk to you about Christopher Nolan, let's actually separate this into two questions. Okay. When I say Christopher Nolan, what do you think? You know, now I think with the with the success and the magnitude of the Batman trail, the Dark Knight trilogy, that's what I first think of. But I think of Nolan's other films as well, like Inse- things like Inception, which are also sort of emblematic movies. But I think now it really does boil down to the Dark Knight trilogy. At least that's the first thing I think of with him. Because he, I think these are widely regarded as some of the greatest superhero movies. They're very grounded in a reality. You know, they're they're really they're really realistic and dark portrayals of superhero films that typically superhero films don't have that sort of tone. And I think he's um, directly associated with that. What do you think of when you think of Nolan? He's very innovative and very you know became powerful in Hollywood pretty quickly. Through his talent. I think about a few movies as well. Obviously, my my first introduction to him, I, I saw, I think, Inception. Well, actually, Inception came out kind of later. I must have saw Batman Begins first. But I didn't really know who Christopher Nolan was or why that name had gravitas and importance until it was until really The Dark Knight Rises, actually, okay. which is my favorite of the three films. And we'll talk about that later because that's not an incredibly popular opinion. But I think the movie is incredibly superior to the other two. But actually, Interstellar which came out in 2014, is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it just we'll do a show on that in the future, I'm sure. I absolutely, absolutely adore Interstellar. I think it's an incredible movie, strengthened, of course, by the inclusion of physicist Kip Thorne into the writing and filming process to make everything grounded in reality. There's a 
great book called The Science of Interstellar that explains how everything in Interstellar is possible within the realm of Einsteinian uh, Einsteinian physics or whatever. It's a very interesting thing. So like the way that the wormhole appears next to Saturn as an orb instead, we look at it as like a tear in space time, but it would actually appear as like a distortion and things like that. Like that's all real or how the planets are whirling around the black hole gargantua as they call it in the in the movie and time dilates on the planet on miller's planet specifically and they go back to the ship and 27 years had passed even though three years had passed wow, or three man. hours had it's passed so rather heavy. Than so great film when i think about christopher nolan i i really do fundamentally think about that film and how it's almost unbeatable and i almost feel bad for him because he keeps making great movies but i don't know how you're ever going to top that and of course you and i and, D- and dad had seen dunkirk when we were on the island last year which is a i think actually a very different film for him But I think Christopher Nolan's mantra, and you can see it in Inception, you can see it in Interstellar, you can see it in the trilogy and in other films, is that he takes things that are unbelievable and makes them real. And that's why it worked so well for Batman. I don't think that he would be able to walk in and do this for Superman. And I think Superman's super corny anyway. Yeah. And I don't think he would even be able to do this for Marvel. I think that Batman, Batman specifically, and Christopher Nolan were a marriage made in heaven. Because Batman was always the most grounded and realistic of the superheroes from my perspective, along with others like the Punisher I always thought was somewhat realistic and, and certain other characters that you see. But Batman has no superpowers. He's just a rich tycoon, almost like Iron Man, which is why Iron Man's one of the only Marvel superheroes I really care about. So that's what I think about. And, and these movies, I don't think really became a big deal. I mean, I was in college when, when the original one, Batman Begins, came out in 2005. And I remember seeing it and people liked it, but I, I remember kind of going away like, People weren't really that enamored with it in my circle. It wasn't until 2008 when The Dark Knight came out. And The Dark Knight is like the 31st highest grossing movie of all time. That oh, wow. people began to talk, I think, both about Christopher Nolan and about this mo- and about this series of movies and the, and the upcoming third movie that was going to be placed after that as something far beyond the scope of what we would expect in this realm. And so I think that that's super exciting. And... The unfortunate reality is that we're just never going to get movies this good again in this in the the superhero sphere, the very saturated and, in my opinion, very overwrought and very corny superhero sphere. We finally had something like really, really neat. The other question I want to ask you, Dagan, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the movies and how we feel about the movies and the portrayal of Batman and the villains, especially since the rogue gallery in these movies is exceptional, especially because of the, the people that he selected. None of the villains except for Joker were obvious choices. And I think that that's really cool, especially when you consider who they wanted who you know Warner wanted in the movie, specifically in the third one, they really wanted the Riddler and they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to play him. And I like that he went in different directions. But when I say Batman, what do you think about? Just Batman. Just Batman. Like not not any film portrayal, not necessarily any comic portrayal, but just generally yeah. that character and the essence of Batman. You know, I grew up with Batman in two different sort of ways. One was the Super Friends Batman, who was part of the, you know residing there in the Hall of Justice with Superman and Wonder Woman and everything and fighting against the Legion of Doom. And then the other one, of course, was the, you know, now, of course, super famous Batman live action series that I I grew up watching in the 70s and 80s, which was, I guess, already syndicated by that time. So that very goofy, silly live action Batman show. So those are the first two things I think about because those are the two things I grew up with. And Batman was already a big part into the 70s and into the 80s with, you know, Batmobile toys and Batman, you know, Barbie-sized scale dolls and the old, I think, Mego Super Friends action figures, you know, the Batman and Superman. So he was always part of... Batman always... I grew up 
I think looking at him in two ways. One, he was kind of part of that DC superhero lineup, which the you know the Super Friends sort of portrayed him as. And then, of course, the live action show with Batman and Robin, and which was very, very silly. But I, I think as a kid, I found it, I did find it cool. I think as a kid, especially back then, we weren't very sophisticated. We didn't know what campy was, really. You know, we, we, we sort of got that as we got older and as we became to realize what a parody was and what, you know, riffing on something was. But back then, it just seemed kind of neat. For some reason, I really loved Batgirl. I loved when she, she wasn't always on the show. But I believe in the animated. You remember, you remember the Batman series sure. on TV. The you know it had an animated live action show, but it had an animated intro. And when Batman Batgirl was going to be on the show, they did a little thing of her at the end of the intro where her you see her motorcycle come in. So I always looked forward to that character. I always thought she was cool. And so yeah, that's what the first thing. And then later on, of course, I had friends. I wasn't a, you know tradition. I was really a manga kid and I wasn't really into American comic books quote unquote but I had a lot of friends especially my friend Pat who I've referred to in the show before he was very very much into American comics he was very into X-Men and the Punisher and Batman and all the Frank Miller Batman comics and he's the one who introduced me to Batman in the comics including books like The Killing Joke which I didn't know outside of what he was showing me because I wasn't really into it I think those comic books that Pat was showing me um, in junior high school and into early into high school, that was opening up a, a world to me of Batman that I didn't realize really existed. That, you know, it wasn't just this TV show and like, you know, sort of the campiness and the cartoons from the 70s. There was more to it. And that's when I think I started to realize what the Dark Knight was and that this was a different, darker portrayal of and depiction of Batman as the Dark Knight. So... Yeah, very well said. I I look at Batman as a sort of schizophrenically presented character, depending on what you see. Yeah. I'm not a scholar of early television and kind of those more gilded years in television in the 60s specifically, but I really do feel like the Batman television show, the Adam West show, was probably one of the first or at least the most prominent example of camp on television. And so it was presenting to people something totally different. And the, the word camp and the idea of campiness... We've talked about it in the past because I'm actually quite attracted to it in some ways. And it's funny because you kind of draw the dichotomy between that and my love of certain campy things. And then my love of why I like the Batman trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy so much from Nolan is because it's not that at all. So I think it's possible to like two things at once. G.I. Joe and Mega Man are probably two of my favorite IP from my childhood. And those are incredibly campy in terms of the presentation, in ter- especially G.I. Joe. But Mega Man has that, too. And camp, again, is hard to define. It really means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Like people even look at certain movies in the 70s and really a rise of of certain campy films in the 70s and and Rocky Horror and stuff like that as as like kind of the pinnacle of camp and all of that kind of stuff. Because it's it's silly. It's over the top. It's elastic in certain ways and in terms of the way it's stretched in different directions. And you know it when you see it. And so Batman has strayed into this multiple times and has also strayed into the series multiple times, but has never really in my mind been in the middle. And I'm glad that it never explored that middle space. When you think about Adam West Batman and then you think about Batman and Robin and Batman Forever, those are one version of Batman. Right. And then you think about Batman, Batman Returns and the Nolan trilogy along with the animated cartoon, which is amazing, which is how I got into Batman. Very, very brilliant. Then you have a different kind of Batman with a more of an interesting through line that, that connects to me. My, my origin with Batman is in the 90s in the Batman animated series. Now, I was not 
inherently a big fan of cartoons growing up. I wasn't. I watched as much as a normal child would watch because that's kind of what we're given. I'd watch Looney Tunes, and we talked about this a little bit on our Saturday morning episode about some of the shows that I was exposed to and, and Animaniacs and Tiny Toons and stuff. And one of the shows that I really loved and that I used to get on VHS and used to really research and investigate when I'd go to the library or whatever the case might be in those, in those heady 90s days was the Batman animated series. Being introduced to Batman in that way in a very scaled back and very stripped down animated style that's very beautiful for, in my opinion, you're able to kind of understand the essence of it because unlike you, or I'm, I'm sorry, similar to you, I am not attracted to comic books at all. So you're never going to find me reading a Batman comic. I've read literally zero words and zero panels of a Batman comic right. in my life. I don't care. And I used to talk about back in the day that I wish Batman stories were told in novel form because I'd read them. I think that that would be super interesting. That would that would lend itself well to it. Definitely. Do you feel like Batman is stronger in one direction or the other? The very serious Nolan-esque thing that I think has its provenance with 89 Batman and has its provenance with the cartoon? Or do you think it's actually stronger in its own way by not taking itself seriously, the Adam West Batmans and Batman Forever and specifically Batman and Robin? It's a really great way to think about it because I, I, do, I think I love the fact that it's so elastic and that it's so flexible that you could kind of pull it and bend it different ways. And I love, you know, with camp, I think the way it is, you're right, it's really difficult to define it. But I think one way of thinking about it is that the characters are acting in a serious way with gravity and are taking the situation very seriously, but we know it's silly. They're overdoing it, in other words, you know. It's like, I'm here to save the day with my bat shark repellent. In their space, they're completely 100% for real. They're not... They're not being funny, but we know it's funny. So that's kind of a strange thing, right? But I love that you and I love that you brought up Batman the animated series because Bruce Tim, who famously shepherded that show and ran it and ran the the entire thing. It was his vision. It was him helming that entire thing. He's a brilliant man, extremely creative, a brilliant draftsman and artist, but also just a wonderful storyteller. And he was the one, I'm really glad you brought him up, because he was the one that kind of did, I feel like, did Batman justice on the screen before Christopher Nolan came along. And Bruce Timm should be mentioned. And I think Bruce Timm is really the guy. People that know a little more about the DC Universe might argue about this with me, but I think, I always felt like Bruce Timm should be the one running the show over there, doing the, you know, the DC films and doing that whole thing, you know, shepherding that whole thing. He's inherently so connected and so in in lockstep with that whole thing. I would, I think he would be wonderful, and I don't know why he's not more involved. And I love that you kind of drew a through line from the 1989 Tim Burton film to the Nolan films, because what you're saying is that was kind of a serious and darker portrayal that sort of kind of threaded itself through the Joel Schumacher which version, which was a little sillier, and... Burton's second version and then kind of came through and became a whole different thing, but sort of on that continued trajectory of being a little more of a serious representation. But again, the Tim Burton films, obviously it's Tim Burton, very stylistic, you know, kind of, ha- he, his, he's, of course, it's Tim Burton, so his hand is seen all over that. And again, that's sort of another iteration that you could take Batman in. I think you could do a lot with Batman, not only Batman, but the things that parody Batman like Darkwing Duck and stuff like that. So there's something very special about Batman is like this, you know, you can kind of see it as this black ball of clay and you can kind of just sculpt it however you want and it, and it works. You know, some things are more successful than others, but I think that, I think you could draw the success up to the 
sort of inherent vision of the creator and how how much they really have their heart in it, you know, like a Bruce Timor, Chris Nolan. I think that we have to because we brought up I don't think we have to talk much, much more deeply about Adam West and we don't have to talk too much deeper about the cartoon because I actually think that. In my opinion, the cartoon could be its own episode in the future. Sure. Because that's definitely. something that I'm really quite familiar with and would love to talk about. But, And that's like really – Batman, again, is just one of the very rare instances of me caring about any of this kind of stuff. You and I are very similar in that way. Like I just was never drawn to it. And even – I even had some buddies like you that, that were into it. And I would collect some of the toys when I was a kid and stuff like that. But it just wasn't very attractive to me. But I think we do have to kind of note starting with Burton in 89 and then Returns, I think, is 91 or 92 and then 95 and 97 with the Schumacher. I think he did both of them, right? I've often thought that, and I think this is just a foundational element that we have to talk about before we finally start talking about the Nolan movies themselves. Yeah, is this that is good. I always kind of felt that Batman Forever and Batman and Robin were a little, a little harshly judged. I'm not saying that they're great films or even good films. They're actually insane in a yeah. lot of ways. Like, especially Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze and, like, the whole ice skating scene when they're fighting the guys on skates. And so it's very, very weird. But I think if you watch it for what it is and what it was clearly inspired by, I think that... It just didn't resonate with a mid-90s audience that was much more into grit and grime. And you look at a lot of films and a lot of TV and music from that era, and it's just – it's totally disparate from the, the era. I actually feel like those movies were a little ahead of their time in some weird way where, like, today I think something like that would be a little bit more appreciated for what it was. But I don't think that there's any question that Burton's movies are way better. And – I wonder if you feel like there's any resonance to those movies before we move forward or if like when we get to Batman Begins, if that's kind of what you were looking for all along, you know? Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to put it. I think the Schumacher movies, for me, they always felt what I kind of call and label mushy. Like they feel to me like they don't know what they want to be. The atmosphere is a little bit dark, but it's silly at the same time. It feels like it's trying to take every iteration of Batman, like the Batman TV show, the visual aesthetic, a little bit of the visual aesthetic of the Burton films, maybe a little bit of the Frank Miller attitude and sort of dark and foreboding sort of vibe to it. It's sort of taking a little bit of everything, not knowing what it really wants to be. I feel like, there's it, again, it's just kind of drawn up to like a specific lack of vision. Like, say what you want about the Burton films, but Tim Burton knows exactly what he wants to say. And he says it, you know, the Christopher Nolan films, he knew exactly what he wanted to say. And he said it, the Frank Miller comic books, he had a certain vision for Batman that was very well realized. Even the Batman, the Batman TV series, you know, say what you want about it. You might not prefer, you know, the sort of man in tights, silly version of Batman and Robin, but it is exactly what it wants to be. It's very fully 100 percent realized and depicted on screen the you know the vision the creator's vision is pulled out and put on screen 100% the way it's supposed to be i feel like the schumacher versions are a little bit of everything and it that that you know smacks to me of something that you didn't really know what it wanted to be you were afraid to commit to one way you know it feels like a little bit of everything to me and i've only seen each one of those movies once and i didn't like them and I think that's what it is inherently. It's, you know, the performances could be fun. They're obviously high budget films. There's obviously a lot of TLC put into them, but it just feels like it wants to be a little bit of everything. And I think that sort of, it's almost like a creative cowardice to commit to one thing. I think that's right there in black and white for everybody to see, you know. Fair enough. I mean, certainly the, the, vast majority of the audience agrees with you because Batman and Robin in 97 
is what is widely considered the kind of the death knell of Batman for a long time. And Warner and, and Associated Properties tried to revive it over time. There's famously Joss Whedon submitted a script in 2002 that was turned down and and et cetera and so on. And, and that was at the height of really Joss Whedon's kind of prestige just in terms of writing and all of that. Mm, well said. So it's very it's very interesting that they were very gun shy until they finally, I guess, found that Christopher Nolan was an attractive option for them. And Christopher Nolan's an interesting filmmaker because he's notoriously a control freak. He's a very rare filmmaker that refuses to use any second unit. There, there's literally, and for people that don't know, a second unit is basically the director will empower another team to basically go film things that aren't as important. The less important stuff. And he has none of that. He directs every scene himself. And so he's a super control freak. And on the other side, he is super loose. Like there's a story about Dunkirk, his most recent movie, where he proposed that he would film it with no script. And he and Christopher Nolan's one of the most powerful and respected directors in all of Hollywood and all of global film. And they wouldn't even let him do that, you know? And I don't really blame them. But finally, they, in 2003, settled on on letting Christopher Nolan direct the film. And David Goyer famously wrote the script for the first film. I think Christopher Nolan's brother is the one, Jonathan, I think his name is, is the one that jumps on and writes the second and third films or helps write them. Okay. We see a Batman here in film form that we actually never saw before, not only because Christian Bale is, is I think, very effectively playing him, although I think Christian Bale as Batman is one of the least important factors of why this, this trilogy actually works. That's I think it could be almost point. anyone. Good point. But it's that we see Batman's origin story really told in a fully fleshed out way, and the consequences of that origin story kind of reverberate through the other two films. And that's what I liked about it the most. I think Batman Begins is the weakest of the three films by a mile. But I think that it has a lot to offer in that it's not about glitz and glamour and flash. It's about real darkness and a really harrowing enemy or a series of enemies. And not only Ra's al Ghul, but more immediately in, in Scarecrow, who's actually in all three films. And I didn't realize that. I don't know how I didn't realize that until Dad's the one who pointed it out to me. Yeah, he's a big fan. Yeah, he loves that. these movies. Where I'm like, oh yeah, he is in the third one. He's on the kangaroo court. Right. In the he's like the judge, on the, which I loved. I loved how he, they just because also he's in the very beginning of of the second film. But there's something harrowing, Dagan, to me when I compare and contrast these films and Batman generally and the kind of the world of Batman and Gotham and crime ridden city and corrupt politicians and a corrupt police force and all those kinds of things. Things that that feel like they are stories that matter. And I think that's what Christopher Nolan was able to kind of put forth. Like when I look at guardians of the galaxy, which I don't care at all about or things like that, I'm like, there are no stakes that matter in any of these films. Who gives a shit? I mean, I, I know that they're popular. I'm not trying to disparage people's passion for Marvel properties. And DC has this problem too. Like when I saw, I actually laughed out loud when I saw the Aquaman trailer, I actually started laughing. I'm like, this is absolutely absurd saying where's Bruce Tim. Can so get Bruce Tim on I don't think stuff? you're. Gonna, I don't think there's any making Aquaman cool, but we can save that for another. I don't oh, think you can do no. literally anything to Aquaman to make him cool. <laughs> like they have what Jason Momoa playing him, who's super fucking cool. He's and great, and, and you can't. You're not gonna be able to do anything about it. But it's a silly kind of thing. But it, it we can compare and contrast it. I think they get to Star Wars in the sense that Star Wars is this galaxy far, far away with techno- unthinkable technology. But it's really at the end of the day still about very fundamental and understandable things about family about fatherhood, about crime, about deceit, deception, and all those kinds of things. And I just feel like when I watch some of these Marvel movies, the few I've seen, I'm like, I don't... It's all about the glitz and glamour. It's very similar to what you were talking about, about how you hate Transformers, the the reboot of Transformers. And then it's just a mess of shit on the screen right. to get money and to, and to use practical... Or to use special effects and to kind of draw kind of 
low impact attention from the audience. Yeah, using and, the name and making it whatever you want. Right. And this movie's the exact opposite to me. So what do you think about 2005's Batman Begins? Because this is obviously the way that they kick off the the trilogy. It's a really great point, Kyle. I love that you talked about, first of all, Christian Bale. And oddly enough, he's the star character. He's playing the protagonist. But I think you're right. I think it doesn't really matter who plays Batman. But to, to put it in, I'll put it into, I'll kind of bracket it with two main points. First of all, I love these movies. I don't like Christian Bale. I think there's something off-putting about Christian Bale. I think he has a certain lack. I think he's a good actor, but I think there's a certain lack of warmth to him. And I think that, well, first of all, let me start by saying that I love the Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, especially this first film, because comparing it, especially as you said, to the Marvel films, I feel like it's very welcoming to everybody because it's a very well thought out and very thorough depiction of the Batman slash Dark Knight story. It tells you everything. It starts from the very beginning. And we've seen the Batman origin story told on the screen before, but we've never seen it to this degree, if you think about it. You see what happens to his parents. You see what sort of fuels you know, young Bruce Wayne. It goes into his teenage years, his training, you know, everything he goes through to become, to sort of become, you know, this crime fighter who he wants, to, and this Avenger, and this kind of avenging presence who he kind of wants to become. It's welcoming in the way that it tells you everything. Where, as a Marvel story, and you already said it really well, a Marvel story, when you open up an Avengers movie, or any of the Marvel stories, it's sort of relying a little bit on you knowing about this stuff already. You have to know the Guardians of the Galaxy or the Avengers or Tony Stark or Spider-Man or whatever. It sort of depends on you already. It's taking advantage of the fact that you know a little bit. Hopefully you know a little bit about this already. And here's what we're going to do with it. And here we're gonna, and here's this, remember this villain? We're going to make this giant you know, battle set piece with this villain. I think what the, especially the first Dark Knight film does is it really welcomes you in and tells you a story thoroughly and it immediately gets you immersed and it immediately involves you in who in who Batman is and who Bruce Wayne is and who he wants to become. And, you know, of course, you could talk about the aesthetic, which is which is absolutely gorgeous and grounded in a, a really wonderful reality. But I think this, and this may not be a very popular sentiment that my second point is, I think Christian Bale, unfortunately, works against that a little bit. I always wanted to see. I always inherently felt like I wanted to see somebody else play. I felt like he's ruining it a little bit. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the already well-trodden area of the way he speaks when he's in the Dark Knight suit, you know, which is I think is a little polarizing. And we could get into that more. But I think there's just sort of a inherent coldness to Christian Bale that I think keeps you, or at least for me personally, keeps me from caring about the character very much. It's not that he's not good. It's not that he's not, a, you know what, he, he's, a, he's a good actor. You know, I wouldn't take that away from him. There's just something that, a presence that he's bringing to the role that I feel like they could have gone a different direction with. Sure. How do you feel about that? What is your take on that? It's funny because it just goes back to the point of when I think about these movies, I think about Christian Bale like third or fourth in terms of like why I like them. Like I could, like Batman is obviously, the like you said, the protagonist and central to the story. And yet... 
he's kind of just a participant in the greater machine that makes this work for me, which is the pacing on these movies is excellent. The villains are excellent and very well cast and very intelligently used. It's very easy to rely on the same sort of rote villains, and they do with one of them with Joker, although we'll talk about The Dark Knight next. But, you know, again, going with Scarecrow specifically and then kind of making him realistic to me was – when I saw the movie in the, in the in the theater in college, I was like, I fucking love that the villain is just a dude who puts a burlap sack over his head. That <laughs> he's like a doctor of some sort. And he has like this access to these crazy things. I'm like, it's realistic. It's not gonna happen, but it's realistic. Those are two different things. I think when we talk about realism, yeah. I think people often are like, well, realistic means that it's probable, and I'm like, no, realistic means that it's possible. It's believable. You know, it's not. Just because I say something is realistic doesn't mean that it's going to happen. But I, when I say, when I look at the Avengers, and, I, and again, these are different movies. When I look at that, I'm like, this is impossible. This is never going to happen. But when I see the the mad psychiatrist with a burlap sack over his head, he's just a dude. And he trips people out and people think that they're seeing things that aren't there because of, because of the psychotropic kind of ways that he's treating them. I'm like, this is cool as hell, you know? And it's a different look at Scarecrow from the animated series, which was where I was introduced to him. And it's the same thing with Bane. We even got a, a radically different Bane than what was introduced in the in the cartoons as well. Definitely. And I think Bane is the strongest of the three villains. We'll get into that. That's very controversial. But for me, I like that it grounded Gotham in this grit and dire kind of nature. There's really nothing. There's like very little sunshine, very little vivid color palette and very, you know, no pastels and weird shit like that. It's... It's brown, it's rusty, it's gray, it's rainy, it's smoky and cloudy and foggy. And and it's just exactly what I want and exactly what I feel like I need. It feels like there's something at risk here. It's not this ridiculous thing. Like when I saw Batman versus Superman, which is a terrible movie, and it's the last superhero movie I saw actually, I laughed out loud at multiple times in that movie. <laughs> and I actually kind of felt bad because I know that there were people in the theater that are really into it and really serious. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to insult them, but I laughed like a few times. Yeah. That's how it struck you. It's, it's the same thing. When I saw the last Jedi, I laughed out loud when, when Leia flew through space, I actually started laughing. I hear you on that one. There isn't a single time in any three Nolan movies where I, where I felt that way. In fact, I was riveted by these movies. And so, you know, Batman, well, we got some letters here that I want to read out. And by the way, again, you can support us on patreon.com slash Collins last stand for early access to the show. And one of the tiers is you get the topics early that we record in each wave because Dagan and I record these like eight or ten at a time. And then you can submit your questions, comments, concerns, ideas, thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. And many of you wanted to sound off on Batman, obviously. Marcus Brown said, I will never forget going to the theater with my grandpa and brother when I was 10 years old seeing Batman Begins. First of all, I was 21, so I'm an old man, I guess, compared to you. At that day and age, I was privileged to be young and at the dawn of what we were used to now in the superhero genre. I will never forget the feeling I had seeing what would be the resurgence of Batman and one of the greatest trilogies of all time. It even piqued my grandpa's interest, and he he eye-rolls everything. <laughs> what I like about this, Dagan, because I think that Marcus's comment touches on something which I'm curious how you feel about, and this might be something better spoken about at the end, but I think we can start talking about it now in the beginning, preemptively, is that... We talk about superhero movies, popcorn flicks, right? These are films in my mind. And I think that there's a difference. I mean, these are obviously synonyms, but I think that there's a difference. Christopher Nolan makes films. And so if Christopher Nolan's going to make a movie about Batman, it's going to be a film about Batman. It's not going to be a popcorn flick about Batman. And we were talking about it before. Like, you know, Marcus is talking about how it drew his his very skeptical grandfather in. 
it drew in our very skeptical father. Dad loves these movies. And dad doesn't give a shit about any of that stuff. No superhero stuff for him, really. So I think it's a pretty common thing. And yeah. Do, so do you feel that way? Do you feel like these movies are spoken about? I mean, these are obviously movies that have garnered Academy Award nominations and stuff like that, too, and even wins. But it just seems like you're never going to see Guardians of the Galaxy or the Avengers, anyone in that put up for Best Supporting Actor. And Heath Ledger wins wins Best Supporting Actor for his role. It's almost True. unthinkable when you really think about it. Like, it would never happen. Yeah. I really dig you putting it in the, in those terms because Nolan is a filmmaker. Marcus is saying about his grandfather was something I was trying to say a little earlier, too. There's a, I think these films are so different, first of all, than the way we've seen Batman portrayed on the screen in the past in the many iterations on the small screen and big screen that, it, first of all, it's so different and so grounded in a reality that I think that it is automatically very magnetic in the fact that and it sort of welcomes you because it doesn't rely on you knowing anything, you know, and it's presented in a way that's, you know, that really draws you in. And I think it, you know, across generation, across, you know, whether you like superheroes traditionally or you don't, you know, I think the price for entry is very it, it's right there. Like it, it just involves you. I think that's also drawn up to the fact of just a very coherent vision of how you want to say it and what you're saying. And there's nothing silly about it. I mean, even if you take, like, take Tim Burton's versions. I love the Tim Burton films. And they're very nostalgic for me, especially the first one. But I think even such a portrayal, there's a cartooniness to Tim Burton's version. He, he has that sort of stamp and that art direction that says, you know, this is dark and brooding, but also check out this gigantic clown head. You know, he has that sort of aesthetic stamp. Where the aesthetic stamp, I think, on the Nolan films and all the stamps, all the hallmarks of the film are just immediately very welcoming. And I'm not saying welcoming in a bright and sunny way. I'm saying that they're they're welcoming you into the story and they're going to show you what this thing is about. And it doesn't rely on you knowing anything about it already. Because here, this is the story. Don't worry about those other things. There, are, there, are, there is nothing else. It's this. And I think what you said is a great point to kind of put the seal on it that it's a fi- it's presented maybe the first time Batman isn't presented as a popcorn film or as a really stylistic departure of what had previously come before now it's just a f- it's a f- it's not a popcorn movie it's a film and you know here it is and i th- i could see that welcoming in somebody's grandfather for sure yeah it, to me it's a movie that makes you want to lean in right absolutely you know we'd be loath not to talk about the supporting cast and a lot of these people kind of transcend either two or, or all of the movies. First of all, I think Michael Caine as is, is Alfred Pennyworth, really, really, really well executed. I actually think that it's rare for Alfred not to be decently cast, but I think that this particular That's portrayal true. of Michael Caine, he's a bit harsher on Bruce than I think typical, a little bit more fatherly, but also on the contrary, a little more doting over him as well, like caring, especially in the third movie where things get like really dark for him. Oh, it breaks your heart. But he's so he's so wonderful. Yeah. So what do you think about Alfred? I mean, I love Michael Caine. He's one of my favorite actors. And I think even though he's not in it a hell of a lot, you feel a lot. You feel inherently a lot of that. The gravity and the there you you feel their history. You feel their history because you know that Alfred's been there since the beginning, since, you know, Bruce was a boy. And just in their exchanges, you feel that history and those roots. And I love, always love that. You know, I always love... Those are always some of my favorite scenes, those exchanges between Bruce and Alfred. 
they're very stern in some ways and very but also there's a stoic nature to it that I think is probably underplayed too. I think that Michael Caine and Christian Bale actually work quite well together. There's a there's a that relationship is even though we're knocking Christian Bale in, in, in many ways, I think that that particular relationship, which is fundamental to the understanding of the story of Batman, I think really works very well. They get almost passive and uncaring and in at sometimes surprisingly witlessness of Bruce Wayne for as smart and as rich and as endowed with gift as he is, is at this in both material and, and innate is at the same time kind of tempered by this man who seems to always know more than him. And always seems to know better, but wants to kind of guide and direct him in the right way. Not very unusual from the Alfred that is presented in other places, but I, I do think that that relationship works really well. How about Liam Neeson as Ra's al Ghul? I think Liam Neeson is just an incredibly talented actor that I can't really think of any role that I've ever seen him in that I didn't even like. I mean, he was even one of the shining, rare shining spots in Phantom Menace. Definitely. So not a super memorable character, but you remember his stamp on the film. At least I do. And then you have, and we'll talk about some of these other characters later, but Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox is a really great character, too. Wonderful. And, and Lucius Fox, of course, is kind of like the, the guy at Wayne Enterprises that is kind of secretly feeding Bruce Wayne all of the crazy shit that he uses. And it's surprising to me, like, and I guess it's, it's this, in, this, in the inherent suspension of disbelief that you have to have in this character and in this world, which is required in any superhero movie, or really many movies generally, is, like, no one made the connection no one, you know, it's it's the same thing with the voice and like how it's clearly Christian Bale behind the mask. I was always really disgruntled <laughs> by that. Yeah, me too. Where I'm like, it's it's kind of obvious who it is, and the technology should kind of indicate to you that he has a, a rich benefactor or is rich himself, similar I, to Iron Man. I wonder if that's like a thing in you know like stipulated in an actor's clause or something where it's like you can't mask the person too much. Like you still got to be able to tell it to me. You know, I wonder if that you think. <clears throat> that's kind of, that's kind of an odd thing. I never thought of it. It's before. possible. It's not as bad as like I remember watching an episode. I didn't watch much of it, but I watched it with someone the that Arrow television show that I think is on CW. Yeah, and it's totally it. fucking outrageous. Like it's so clearly whoever that is. Yeah. Like, when he's talking to people, I'm like, how do you not know? It's just, I know it doesn't bother you. He just like looks down a little bit. and They put makeup on his face, like to darken his face in the shot. <laughs> fucking corny. But we, I guess, we really should get into Dark Knight, which you know comes out in 2008 and. For, I think, a plurality of people that enjoy this trilogy, this is kind of the seminal film. Definitely. I would agree that it's leaps and bounds ahead of the original. I think that it's inferior to the third movie. And we'll talk about kind of those disparate opinions. But obviously, this movie focuses on an even darker story in a way and about the coordination between the political and kind of law enforcement spheres of Gotham City to kind of take down this very sociopathic and psychotic and seemingly endlessly clever villain in Joker played very capably by Heath Ledger in one of his last roles. And he was deceased by the time the movie even came out. I think, I think that's right. Yeah. So we have a lot of feedback from the audience on this one, Dagan. Okay. I can't wait to hear this. Omar Rosa says, I can't think of another superhero movie that felt as real as dark Knight. The setting politics, characters, etc., definitely stuck with me after seeing it in the theater. I'd like to hear what your guys thoughts are on this. And, and we will get into that. And Will Hahn says, I believe that the Christopher Nolan Batman movies are the best superhero movies ever made. One of my favorite scenes is, of course, when Batman first rides the Batpod in the Dark Knight when the Tumblr explodes. That scene is absolutely badass and is one of the best action set pieces in any superhero movie, in my opinion, of course. He asks us to go into our favorite uh, moments and for me to do the Bane My Bane voice, which I will do when we <laughs> get to those. You are good at it. Yes, brother. <laughs> but 
we will get to that later, but I wanted to acknowledge those kinds of things before we get into this conversation. I think the only thing that we really have to talk about here, I don't want to say only thing, but I think the fundamental thing is to talk about Heath Ledger. Yeah. What do you make of his rendition of Joker? Because maybe it's because I never explored the depth of Batman lore in the past and never really thought about what Joker could be. But the way that he was portrayed in the Adam West TV series and the way he was portrayed by Jack Nicholson in the Burton movie, in the first Burton movie, was to me an indication of a Joker that isn't really who the Joker is, but some, but who I thought the Joker was, if that makes any sense. In other words, like you knew he was a little bit maniacally, wore clown makeup, he was dressed in a finely pressed suit and all those kinds of things, and it was cool, but... When you see Heath Ledger, he's he's insane. He's calculated yet has no objective, and it was it, it brought a whole different feeling to that character for me. So, what do you think Absolutely. about what do you think about Heath Ledger's rendition of the Joker? Well, you know, it was such a departure. I mean, the first thing and it's already been well said and 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 almost overstated at this point, but I don't think you can overstate it. Ledger's portrayal of Joker was so different from what most people had seen before. So we know the portrayal from the Batman television series and we know Jack Nicholson's famous portrayal on the screen of Joker but what Ledger brought to it I think was not only different it was it's still exaggerated in a way but the the striking thing about it is it's not cartoony you can really there's layers to it and what I mean by that is the Joker sort of even though he looks inherently he looks odd and he looks scary he sort of presents himself you know, quote unquote, as a normal human being, he seems rational, he's talking to you. But everything that's happening on screen with him, you could sense the violence and the danger underneath that outermost layer. It feels like his outermost layer is like translucent. It's almost it's hard to describe but almost like translucent. Like you could see you can't see the light through it, though, you could see the darkness through it. And he's very intelligent. It, it already ramps up the drama very much because you know, Bruce Wayne's got his work cut out for him as soon as you meet the Joker. And you know it's going to be a one-on-one thing, so the gravity is immediately, you know, the air is immediately sucked out of the room and the gravity is intensified because now it's a one-on-one battle. And I always loved Ledger's portrayal, and I don't think it's overstated. I think it's extremely frightening because he's presenting himself in a certain way, but you know you know what lurks underneath. And I love also what they're very mindful of in the movie, Kyle, which you'll remember, is they show you who the Joker is by other people's reactions to him. There's a lot of reaction going on, and there's a lot of dangerous people f- reacting in a frightening, in a frightened fashion to the Joker. And that just makes you like, who the hell is this guy? You know, he's sitting in a room full of bad guys that are acting like, kind of like, you know, they're acting like they're completely off-put. And I think that really is a very clever way of telling us who he is, you know, showing us who he is without telling us initially. Remember, at the end of Batman Begins, they tease that the Joker will be the villain in the second one. He finds the Joker card at the end, which is a great tantalizing thing, and we have to wait for several years to see how that resolves in the movie. And there's the famous scene that has obviously been well-studied and well-talked about in Dark Knight, which I still think is studied and talked about because it deserves it, which is... The making the pencil disappear scene. Oh, man. Because this is what you're talking about. These thugs and criminals that are that seem to have power and are basically threatening him. He just walks into this room and just fucking murders one of them right in front of them by, like, smashing a dude's head on a pencil, like, uh, through his eye into his brain. And then has, like, a grenade in his coat or whatever 
and basically just threatens them and and basically just takes a bunch of their money and yeah. bounces. Yeah. And they don't do anything. There's a really great almost flamboyance to that character in my mind about like when he's hanging out of the 18 wheeler and he has an Uzi and he's just shooting it and he's not even really aiming at anything. I understand why people are so attracted to that villain and I am too with this specific rendition of the villain. And Jared Leto, I, I hear, I have not seen just, uh, or I have not seen Suicide Squad, and I think they're doing, an, I think he's re- doing that rendition in another Batman movie in the future. Oh, is I he? I heard that he's pretty capable. It's a sort, sort of different sort of Joker, but Heath Ledger set such a cadence for this character that I'm surprised that anyone would ever even endeavor to do it. How do you follow it? You know, at least give it like a generation's distance before you try again. You know, it's not like Jim Carrey was blowing us away with the Riddler or something like that. Like we could never explore that character again. <laughs> but with this particular thing, or you know, Mister Freeze, but with this particular you know, rendition of the character. It was it was very unsettling. It made it... We were talking about the realness and the realistic nature of... And the grounded nature of the original movie. This is even more grounded and more serious. And like I said, because of its political and criminal kind of intent in a wider way, this is now becoming... You know, this is where Two-Face comes in and this is where things get... You know, this is where Commissioner Gordon comes in, where I think it's Lieutenant Gordon at the time. This is where characters kind of come in in a major way to kind of flesh out the story and makes ironically makes Batman even less important than he was in the first one. Batman's importance to the fu- the functioning of a good film is most important in the first one and then lapses the longer that the trilogy goes on. I think on. you're right. And so it's a really a great ensemble cast. And the thing about Heath Ledger not being a huge fan of film where I would know everything he's ever done is that I had no idea Heath Ledger was that talented. Yeah, where, that's what I wanted to talk about a little bit with you. Where the hell did Heath Ledger come from? He was in films... Yeah, we saw you know? he's in The Patriot. He's in The we, Patriot. Which we love, but he was not a remarkable actor in that. And I think about him, you know, in the teen movie, 10 Things I Hate About You, which came out, I think, in 99 or 2000, where about he just kind of plays a heartthrob. Right. So he shows a great deal of range. Maybe it's my own ignorance. I'm sure he's done other films that people will be like, he did this and this. Of course, he, he was capable of doing this. But right. I, but gro- going in more of a le- as a layman, I was not aware that Heath Ledger was capable of this. But let me ask you this question. Yeah. And I think this is a controversial one, but I think it's worth talking about. Okay. Do we look at Heath Ledger's rendition of the Joker as being stronger than it is because he's dead? I think you have to. I think that's an honest question. I think you have to ask that. Because I often ask that about he won posthumously the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for that role. I don't think it's unearned. I think he's a great actor and, and does a great job. But I can't help but shake the curiosity. Not I'm not, I'm not rendering a verdict, but the no. curiosity on what was his what was the posthumous nature of this? And did that play into yeah. like how we feel about it? In other words, would we feel 80% as strong about Joker if he was still alive? And if we saw him in the third movie, because he was supposed to be in the third movie. That's so, correct. So Bane was like a totally thing they manufactured because he was not, you know, it was supposed to be Joker again. So what do you think about that? I it's think controversial, a, but it's worth talking. About. I think it's a very fair question, but I, I do tend to think that the, I think the performance is so strong that I don't think the posthumous effect plays that much into it i do really inherently think the fact that heath ledger never really did i'm not i think heath ledger is a capable actor but he never did anything previously to this movie of note to the degree he did of his portrayal of the joker so i think the fact that he that sort of where did he come from factor is all plays into it very much because he really which also speaks to the casting of the move the brilliance and the casting of the movie how did they know that he was going to immerse himself in this role and just become the Joker in the fashion that he did. I So I do think the fact, I think less the fact that he passed away, which is extremely tragic, because I would love to, I would have loved to see where Heath Ledger went from there, not just with the Dark Knight films, but just in general, you know. 
it was re- a really brilliant portrayal. But I think the fact that he didn't do anything previously of that magnitude or even close, I think that plays into it more for me. What do you think? I think it's probably – it's, it's unknowable. It's just totally unknowable. It sure is, yeah. I don't think you could blame the Academy for giving best support, giving him a nomination for it, and they voted the way they voted, and we can never really know why they voted that way, and I don't know who they were going up against, and I'm not even sure I'd have an educated opinion on anyone he was going up against anyway, and I don't have an educated opinion on him, nor do I have an educated opinion on acting generally, so yeah. we're kind of talking more as um, as well, laymen. In we're this, observers. In this, exactly. You know? But for me, I, I think that there is a great curiosity in the way the arc of the movie would have gone with the third one. And actually, we have a question about that that I think we're probably playing well now. Okay. I'm a little skeptical about how the third movie would have went. I don't know that I would have loved it as much, but a lot of people disagree. Carter Quinn asks, before Heath Ledger's untimely passing, what was the best possibly planned outcome for the Joker's arc going into the third movie? And I like, I've i thought deeply about this when I read Carter's question, and I'm like, I don't know. Because I like the third movie as it is, I wouldn't change it. So I almost, you know, I wish that Joker's arc, whether or not Heath Ledger passed away or not, obviously we wish that that didn't happen, but I kind of would have been totally happy if that ended there. And we got into the third one and maybe there's a re- reference to him being in, in Arkham or something like that. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, I mean, you could say, I mean, if you really wanted to end on a high note for the Joker or a specifically dark note or at least not an upbeat note, you could end it with a draw whatever that story was going to be and play out in the third film, you could end it with either the, uh, the maybe ending with the Joker having a little bit of an upper hand or a draw between the two. It would be a weird way to end a, you know, a trilogy, but if you really want to end it with power and be innovative about it, that's one way of doing it. Yeah, I think that they ended... We can talk a little bit more about the third movie we're obviously going to, but I think that they did end it with what's-his-name being what, what dark... What what is the? It's not Robin, but the other kind of Batman. Oh, uh, Nightwing. Nightwing. Yeah. Which I think that was what was supposed to be that character, right? The, yeah, I think so. I was going to ask you that at the end of the so show. So I think they were trying to leave it open to maybe doing more, and I don't think that JGL was going in. Yeah, that exactly. Direction. Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, amazing actor. Another guy that was so unassuming until he wasn't. It's the same thing with Leonardo DiCaprio. Definitely. Like, these guys. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio in Growing Pains or Joseph Gordon-Levitt on Third Rock from the Sun. It's like, who knew, man? I know. Who knew well, that you, you guys were going to sprout and well, look these at, amazing... It's like George Clooney, right? Right. On Roseanne. Right? Generational actors. Like generational talents that, you know, are astounding. Leonardo Absolutely. DiCaprio is like, I mean, you kidding me? couldn't have acting without Leonardo DiCaprio at this point. <laughs> it's just amazing that these guys... Like, when you thought about Leonardo DiCaprio in Romeo and Juliet or in Titanic, I like both of those movies. Great but, movies. You never, you know, heartthrob. heartthrob. You would think that, like, like almost similar to like a JTT or someone in the nineties that just went away. Although, you know, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, he wanted to go away. He didn't go away because no one wanted him. He didn't want to act anymore. But they, I don't know. I just didn't expect that that, that happened. I totally understand what you're saying. Eric Wilson wrote in and said, and this is an interesting question. He said, "What do you guys think about the theory that the Joker in the Dark Knight was an Iraq War veteran, or according to Patton Oswalt, more specifically, ex-military intelligence?" Given his knowledge of explosives, firearm strategy, and interrogation techniques, there are no concrete facts coming from Chris Nolan to support this theory, but it does make sense, and it's pretty damn interesting. I'm curious to know how Nolan feels about this. That could be. I don't even know that Christopher Nolan would know that. I don't know if that's even written into their treatment. He clearly has a background of something, but I don't know if it's relevant. It could just be a background of crime, but it's that we don't know anything about him that makes him unsettling. If he had some sort of backstory that made any sense, then Joker immediately becomes less harrowing than he is. And oh, that, I agree with that. That particular instance. The fact that he has no motive and no background is exactly why it's fucking frightening. And that's exactly what they say in the movie. 
there's no rational way to take this guy down. Like, he's no. not going to surrender. He's not going to do anything. Even when Batman is fighting him at the end and Batman's like, he's like shooting. He's still trying to like get Batman, even though he's like, he's done, you know? <laughs> Which is great. You know, I know I have to plead ignorance a little bit on whatever the Joker's background is in the comic books because I don't I don't know what his what his background is but I know I do know that they based this Joker you know Nolan and Heath Ledger they based this Joker on the killing joke you know 1988's the killing joke and 1996 five or six is I think the long Halloween which I don't I read the long Halloween but I don't remember it but the killing joke I remember very well because that was my introduction to Batman comics as I stated earlier so I know, I will say that they, I know they base the Joker on those two books. So if you guys know anything about those two books, that might help answer that question. But again, I think Colin's right. I think kind of overstating the Joker's sort of background and where he came from and what he was about and everything, just I think it dilutes, it would dilute the character. So I'm glad they didn't do that in the films. Yeah, I mean, if there's some sort of structure, like some sort of Bible about the a book or about the movies that only they have in which that helps them structure the character in some way for the actor, yeah. especially in the method acting that Heath Ledger seems to have encapsulated What's his in that favorite character. ice cream? What's his favorite? Yeah, like, <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, like I don't... Character I, Bible stuff. I think every little... I think literally the more knowledge you get, the less harrowing that character becomes. But it is worth noting, Dagan, that there are some other... I, I'd love to know what you th- thought of Gary Oldman's rendition of Gordon. I really... Am quite riveted by that rendition. I think he does such a phenomenal job. It's not only the aesthetic look of what I think Gordon looks like, but there's depth and a tearing of that character. Like he's a skeptic the entire time, or most of the time, yet is willing to concede that he cannot make anything happen without Batman's help. Yes, like he has to go outside of the law in order to make this work. Right. So, what do you think about about Gary Oldman? Very capable actor oh i'd actually God. argue out of all of these guys maybe the best actor in the entire one of the best who ever lived yeah i, mean, I would say There's a really good guy i mean this cast is pretty remarkable oh it's unbelievable the Pro- casting and the and the acting is cr- unbelievable yeah gary oldman there's somebody said something about gary oldman recently that really struck me was that you never see him in the role you never see gary oldman in there ever almost never that's how much of an actor he is you know just a seminal performer and an actor and really immerses himself in every role that he's ever done and I love the fact that you said of Commissioner Gordon because what he has to become is so it's so contrary to who he really is he's a good man and he has to go outside of himself in order to he realized there's a realization that he has to go outside of himself and rely on somebody else who he initially doesn't agree with in order to achieve what he knows he has to achieve and I think that's very striking and I think He's one of the characters that really that really helps ground the film in that sort of reality. And it's he's wonderful in it. You know, he's just wonderful in it. You're so right that he that you know mimicking what you I guess you've heard about him not seeing him in the in the role because I didn't even realize it was Gary Oldman until like well afterwards. Where I I I guess you realize but you don't think about it. You forget. It's the same thing when I saw Darkest Hour earlier in the year, which I think he was nominated for a bunch of awards for when he plays Winston Churchill. Yeah. Now I think his his rendition of Winston Churchill is actually inferior to the rendition of Churchill on fuck, what was I what what is he in? Um in the crown. Oh, the crown, yeah. Uh, I can't remember the guy who plays it. It's the it's the grandfather in Interstellar, ironically, the guy from Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, that's right. He, I can't think of his name for some reason. I'm embarrassed about that. But he, I, I thought his rendition was better. But I didn't see Oldman in that role at all. It, it, it really is remarkable because there are times when you're distracted. You have to suspend disbelief a little bit. Absolutely. He is a remarkable and always a great villain or often a great villain. He he is a great villain. 
What about Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent? I think that Eckhart's rendition of Dent is understated and underrated in the, in the trilogy. You, you said know? it. You definitely said it. Because he's, he's kind of associated with a lot of big actors. Michael Caine, you, you know, Christian Bale, obviously. Gary Oldman, you have Morgan Freeman, Heath Ledger. And then, so of course, you're going to play like 17th fiddle. But I do think he did a nice job. Oh, man. Such a great character. First of all, Two-Face is such a great character and the character of Harvey Dent. And I never even not, I never even cared for Aaron Eckhart before this role. I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. Like, it didn't, you know, it was like, ah, whatever, you know. To me, he's the most tragic character in the whole story. Oh, for sure. You know, but he just becomes the exact opposite of what you think he's going to be, what he really was initially. <laughs> You know, just completely flips like a coin, like a coin, right? Just completely flips 100%. He's an unsettling character, just making decisions based on a 50-50 chance and stuff like that. And it's very literal, obviously, with his face. But they did a really nice job. I was reading a little bit in preparation for this. I didn't know this. I was always wondering how they did his face so well. It's really extraordinary. I'm like, these are amazing prosthetics. Like, oh, I'm not, it, but it's not. It's CG. He wore just like a video game uh, motion actor, the wore orbs on it. Yeah, and I didn't know that. It looks great. I didn't know that either, actually. Like when he's in bed and he turns his face for the first time. I just turned my face away from the mic, so that probably went a little silent. But <laughs> You're I, acting. You're acting. I am. You're inspired. I am, I am acting. <laughs> but Dagan, the trilogy doesn't end there. The trilogy ends with The Dark Knight Rises. Yes, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Give them what they want. This movie is the 19th highest grossing movie of all time. Wow. Even higher grossing. Adjusted Holy for inflation. Cow. This movie, I give them a lot of credit for this, both the Nolan brothers and, and all associated people because they had a they had a scramble to change. They didn't have a script, but they I think they had a treatment and the they had to change what was going to happen. The, you can't really do much. You can't first of all you can't recast them. You can't recast Heath Ledger. Right. It's not going to happen. Not no only did he just win an Academy Award for the role, but it's just it's disres- I think it's disrespectful to do that. Definitely, it wouldn't have worked anyway. If he'd walked away from the film or didn't want to do it anymore, that's maybe that's different. different. But if he died, so you got to kind of respect that. So I respect that they got this movie out, and what I like the most about this movie, and I'm not sure how this resonates with people, and I'm not sure that it was intentional either, considering when it came out, because it's a little close to the border. Yeah, when did it come out? 2012? Yeah. But I do feel like it's about Occupy Wall Street, and that was just another grounding element. Bane is a villain with intent. He's the exact opposite of the Joker. He's trying to empower in his weird way the little man into a revolution. There's that great line Anne Hathaway says where it's like, you know, something about like how you guys have so much and we have so little or something like that. An encapsulation to an extreme of what we were at the time dealing with in our American society. And I'm not entirely sure that that was intentional, but it played out that way. And I, and that's what I really loved about it. So what are your thoughts on, on the dark Knight rises as we kind of talk about the third film in the trilogy? I think it's a great film. It's not my favorite. I think two is my favorite. I think Heath Ledger seals that deal for me. I don't know how it's not about Occupy Wall Street. How would anybody think it's not about that? Not only was it extremely topical at the time it came out, but it just it just smacks of it, you know, from floor to ceiling. And, you know, I, wa- I know you want to get into Tom Hardy a little bit too. He does a wonderful portrayal of Bane. But what happened with the audio thing where you can't really discern what he's saying do you know anything about that? i do yeah so talk, talk to me about that. so they filmed the entire movie with him talking you know on boom mics through the mask and there's actually footage they showed the the plane scene which someone was asking earlier what's my favorite scene in the movie it's the beginning of the dark knight rises i think that's an extraordinary scene 
on the plane. I think it's awesome. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's goosebump worthy. It's so good. I remember seeing it for the first time in the theater and just had to like goosebumps. I'm like, this is awesome. I was really, really stoned. But I <laughs> like I I, abs- I was absolutely stoned beyond belief, actually. And I only saw it once in the theater, so people would make fun of me until it came out on DVD. Like, you don't, it's not as good as you remember, dude. But it was. It's great. So what ended up happening was that I think in 2011, they showed the plane scene to like an audience, like a public audience, and no one could understand what the fuck he was saying. Yeah. It was not the final cut of the movie. Right. It was even worse. And actually, Christopher Nolan had said that it was intentional, that that's what they wanted to do. They wanted it to be like where you couldn't really understand everything he was saying. Okay. That it was the idea that he was saying anything at all that was scary and that you kind of got the idea. And I understand what he was trying to say about that. Yeah. And I'm not also sure if he was trying to protect himself. He made a huge error in filming the movie like that. Bane is in so many scenes that you couldn't do. You couldn't film it again. You couldn't be like, we need two weeks of pickups or whatever. Absolutely. So what they ended up doing was Tom Hardy had to go into a VO booth. And record all of his lines again. And they had to stitch it in with some expert sound audio and They overdubbed it. They had to stitch it in. And it doesn't sound right. But that's actually kind of the unsettling thing about the movie. I love that, like, Tom Hardy's voice resonates in this very Darth Vader-esque. It doesn't sound like Darth Vader, but it's a very Darth Vader-esque. Where Darth, if Darth Vader's talking in a scene in the Star Wars movies, yeah. it really does overshadow everything else. Even though it's perfectly captured in, you That's know, in, true. That, in that scene. And Good it's point. important to remember as well that David Prowse in the suit is not doing the voice of Darth Vader. So it's actually an identical thing where they did over, you know, they did. Yeah, they go do it yeah, later. Exactly. Yeah. It was a process. So that's what ended up happening. And that's why you get Bane's voice, which some people make fun of, but I actually find incredibly unsettling. It is unsettling. It does have that result, sort of that end result. I like Bane the most because, again, there's intent. Joker was unsettling because there was no intent. You had no idea what the hell he was even doing, actually. I, I mean, that's basically it. He was just—it was destruction for destruction's sake. But you don't need that again, right? Now, B- Batman is in, in this movie. Christian Bale's character in this movie is a reluctant. He's hurt. He's super reluctant to be involved in anything. He's trapped in this prison, basically. And you need—you can't just tell him like someone's just doing something for some reason. Again, it's like no. There's a guy who's literally threatening to nuclear annihilate. Gotham City and it has the bomb. Right. He has it. We know he has it. He's blown up all the bridges out of the city and everyone's trapped in it. And it's an amazing fucking story. It's super cool. I love it. And he's trying, by the way, to start a people's uprising. And he does start the people's uprising. Yeah, you see what, which kind of gives him, not that you're sympathetic to his cause, you may or may not be, but you know what he's about. You know, he's completely fleshed out villain. You know what his end goal is. You know, what do you think about the way they introduce him on the plane? That's a pretty controversial scene, but I think it's super awesome oh, I when think they pull the hood off of him. Oh, I think it's so, I think it's amazing. It's amazing, and of course, the I don't want to ruin it for if anybody hasn't seen it. But what follows, you know, you can ruin it. This is you spoil it. It doesn't matter. Well, the spectacle of what follows with the plane and the and everything that happens that follows is, you know, an enormous. It is an amazing set piece. But I think it introduces not only does it introduce the character character to us, but it also tells us a little bit, it gives us some insight into the character. It's a really brilliant introduction. The whole movie actually plays out that way. I feel like it's the most coherent of the three movies in the fact that it's very focused. And it might be because it's wrapping up. But when they did this movie, it was intended as a trilogy. They didn't want to go beyond three, right? Well, I, like we said, I think that they set it up to possibly go beyond that. But there was no intention, I don't think, for Christopher Nolan to remain. To do, right, exactly. They were going to take it further without right. him. Possibly. Possibly. So no reason to lock yourself off. Right, exactly. But yeah, the whole movie, you know, including the Anne Hathaway character and everything, I, I think it's probably I don't know if it's my second or third favorite of the film. I really do love the initial film 
and I love the Ra's al Ghul character, and I love seeing Bruce's training, because I had never seen that before. And I I thought it was very believable. I think Liam Neeson is very believable in that character as the mentor, because he's not only, you know, obviously physically astute, you know, as this killer and an assassin and this fighting machine, but his philosophy and sort of his intelligence as well. Like, I love that character. So he kind of seals the deal for me for number one. And number two, of course, you have Heath Ledger in three. I like ben- I like Tom Hardy a lot. I think he's an interesting ca- I think he's an interesting guy because I think he immerses himself in a role. But I don't see it's not heavy handed. I think Tom Hardy's just extremely talented. It's not I don't I'm not accusing him of not putting the work in and just being, you know, a natural and he just goes in and says, Oh, looks at his watch. All right. Let me immerse myself in this character that I'm out of here. There's just an easiness about Tom Hardy that I love. And we were talking about some of his other films earlier. And I think he's amazing as Bane. Like even Catwoman. I love Anne Hathaway in that role. But I could see other people doing the role. I can't see anyone else doing the Bane character in that film. It's similar to what we were talking about in terms of like the unknowable but hypothetical reaction to Heath Ledger's role as Joker based on his death and all of those kinds of things. I think that... Tom Hardy, it's, it takes a lot of gumption to walk into a role like that, knowing that you're going to be compared to a dude that just won an Academy Award for being a villain in the previous movie. That's a great point. And who was supposed to, and everyone who, and everyone knows was supposed to be in this movie. And you were kind of put in here. They had to rewrite everything. And again, like I told you, the studio wanted the Riddler, and they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio as the Riddler in the movie. That's I can't even picture and that. And that's cool. I like the Riddler, and we'll talk a little bit. People have submitted questions about the the Rogue Gallery that we would love to see Nolan take on and i think we can get really deep into that because i think no i would love to see nolan's rendition of a few of a few villains yeah but i think that you have to look at it through the lens of like if you're going to be compared to a dude that just won an academy award for the role it's not it, it, is it fair or unfair that's not for me to say but it's it's a, it's a reality it's a great point of the situation but the plane scene in the beginning and then the scene at the stock market and the scene at the stadium, stadium. the football stadium, the stadium scene is is an these are amazing scenes that aren't really seen and because Joker wants to cause as much mayhem and destruction as possible, but it's not, he's not really ho- directly holding anyone hostage. There's something deeply evil about what he's doing, but you don't really know who the target is. And Bane is willing to literally drive around a nuclear bomb around the city at all times so no one knows where it is, and is willing to destroy and just murder people in front of everyone else, in front of television cameras and helicopters flying over the city and all those kinds of things. And the scene, I think it's Heinz Ward. Because I think it's the Steelers. I think it. I think they filmed it in Pittsburgh. Oh, did they at really? Heinz Field? I didn't know that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the color scheme of the silver and black, or the uh, not silver, but the yellow and black, which is the the Gotham football team. Whatever. There yeah. are certain players that were on the Steelers that are on the sideline. I think Ben Roethlisberger is on the sideline. Oh, is he like really? That. Yeah. And Heinz Ward. I love that scene of Heinz Ward running the ball, and the and the stadium's like exploding behind Dropping him. And he turns off. around, and celebrates, and it's like all it's all gone or whatever. There's really understated things that Tom Hardy does that I think is really cool. Like he walks out. And there's like a dead ref, and he takes the microphone off of his off of him, <laughs> and speaks into it or whatever, but doesn't put it on, just is talking into it. Take back your city. <laughs> and the stock market scene is the only frustrating scene for me because it's really cool and very action oriented. But I never really quite understood the crashing Wayne Enterprise. If you have ac- that kind of backdoor access to the market, why don't you crash the market? Oh, right. I see what you mean. If you have that kind of access yeah. to the back end of the money market, why are you going after Batman's company? <laughs> Wouldn't you just destroy everything? And c- that would cause m- global mayhem. That's so, unbelievable. So that, but in, in thinking about that more, I was like, well, maybe it shows that Bane is a little more calculated than that. He doesn't care about any of that. He wants to ruin Batman. He wants Batman. He is trying to coerce Batman out. That's the target. 
And so he's doing whatever he can to make sure he comes out. That's I like chilling. That. It is. And there's and when they're fighting on the steps of the city hall, or whatever, and there's just complete mayhem. It's a great it's just great action scenes. Just it really, is. really wonderful scenes. But again, going back to that, you know, like he intentionally gets captured. In the beginning of the film, in order to get like the scientists and, the, and this blood, and they're crashing the. It's really, so different. Yeah, it's it's just I just feel like there's a, a real calculated nature to it that makes it very very good. I also have to give it up to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think he he does. A, I think he's a great character in this. He's in great. The, kind of the reluctant conscience of Gordon, the eminent good guy, and Anne Hathaway, like you said, is, I think does a really nice job. She's wonderful in it. She's wonderful, and you know it was really brave. You said it already, but it was very it was very brave and bold, not only to try to follow Heath Ledger, whoever was going to be in the role, but also to go with a villain, not go with a Riddler this time. Because if you went with a Riddler this time, it takes a familiar trajectory from the past, right? It's like, okay, Joker, villain, Poison Ivy, this, all the villains we've seen already, right? Now, you know, we've seen Cat Catwoman before. Now you take, I think Bane was only really known if you knew the comics, and he was in the, he played a part in the animated yeah, series Yeah, he was basically, well. and, and that was what was interesting was that he was Poison Ivy's kind of like, right hand that's right and and he was like not really human when we look at joker and we look at scarecrow it's actually Bane got the christopher nolan treatment more than anyone which i think is something that a lot of people don't think about the only thing that's like different about him between the film and the animated series which i know from him from is literally everything and, yeah. and i think that's i think that's kind of cool i don't even know like how did christopher nolan even know who bane was yeah it's a, it's a, it, it's it a, shows that he knows a little bit more than maybe just, you know, I maybe that's not a huge surprise, but it showed that he was a little bit more nerdy, I think, than maybe people give him credit yeah, for. Yeah, because he doesn't have that sort of countenance. You don't think of him that way. But yeah, again, it just it just makes the, the Bane choice. It, it worked. It just worked. It really did. It really did. Matt Kurolowski says, this trilogy has one of the best endings ever. The way Batman lets everyone close to him know that he made it out alive, especially Gordon, in the case that he fixed the bat signal, the bat symbol, is incredible and a great way to close the series. I agree. It shows a grounding humanity to Christian Bale's rendition of Batman that we do not see at all until the end. No, and it's very it's, end. It's pretty cool. It's it reminds me of Mad. We were talking about Madman on a couple episodes ago. It reminds me of like how you get an ending you don't really expect, in which the character is fine. Yeah, you don't expect it, but it works, and it's not sentimental. It's a way to end it that feel it still feels right. It, it's it's unexpected, but it feels right, you know. And I love the scene with that ending scene with Alfred. Yeah, it's also when he sees him at the cafe so in France great. or whatever it is. We got similar questions from Alex Ball and Dorian Brown. I'm going to read Dorian's, but Alex, I'm acknowledging you right now because you asked a very similar question. <laughs> there you question. go, Alex. Dorian says, "I'd be remiss also not to mention the Batman trilogy as they're my favorite movies of all time." So my question is, if you could have a Nolan take on any villain, mm. what would it be? Mm-hmm. For me, I always wanted to see what he would do with Mr. Freeze, as I think he's a fascinating character. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Freeze is a great example of a character that could get the antithesis of the Schumacher treatment, which they made him unbelievable because Freeze's whole story is about his wife and how he's keeping her cryogenically frozen so he can find a cure for her, like rare disease. That would be a super interesting thing for Christopher Nolan to have explored. But I wonder if Mr. Freeze is just inherently too campy for the movie. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't know too much about that character. I think the thing that Bruce Tim did was he made a lot of formerly campy villains into things that seemed more cool and grounded in the animated series. So, you know, I think you can take Mr. Freeze in the direction. Nolan's just the guy to do it. But yeah, that's interesting. Well, what do you think? What, do you have a villain that you'd like to see? I think Freeze is a great example. I, I mean, I would have loved to see Poison Ivy. I think Poison like, Ivy is a good choice. These are villains that it would have been cool to see a female villain as a kind of a contrast to Scarecrow and a contrast to to Joker and Bane. 
But I understand the direction that they went in. And I think that you could kind of go in a, in a number of, of interesting directions, not only with Freeze, but again with the Riddler. Because there's a sociopathy to all these characters, you know? But they're, what I love about Batman villains, because it's Batman's like the world's greatest detective, right? And he's like a hyper-intelligent, hyper-analytical. And the Riddler, to me, was the one that always cha- seemed to have the ability to challenge him the most. So I think that I would go... With the Riddler, personally. Yeah, I think that's a good choice. How can you not say? Almost like, how can you not say the Riddler? <laughs> you know? But it would have been cool, you know, similar to how we got a Joker that was kind of, you know, that had some loose face paint, but it wasn't like a big smile. The smile was actually like a scar that he carved into his own face. That kind of like serious nature to Joker. Yeah. It would have been cool to see Riddler with just like a question mark tattooed on his forehead or something like that. Like, the, like or so, like something weird like that where it's like he's not wearing a green suit with question marks on it or he's not... You know, doing crazy shit like that. He's just another psychopath with, that Batman has to deal with, which I think would have been really cool. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think Burton already nailed it with the Penguin. I don't know how you could do the Penguin. I, th- I think Danny DeVito's Penguin is pretty, pretty gross. Pretty cool. It, yeah, Danny. The only better role for Danny DeVito, of course, is, is Frank Reynolds. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm always sunny Can't beat that. Can't beat that. I'll smack you in the ma- I'll smack you in the teeth, D. <laughs> you bitch. Jeshua Anderson says, can we have an honest discussion on whether Bale or Keaton was the best Batman? Mm. I think this is an open debate, in my opinion. I don't think that Bale is the obvious answer. Jeshua seems to indicate that it's maybe the more obvious answer, although he might disagree with it. I think you can make a case for Keaton's Batman. Being I better. like Keaton's Batman. I really do. I think it's very strange. Again, I know we talked about this at the opening of the show, but Christian Bale's Batman is, and Bruce Wayne or Dark Knight is competent, but... When I say there's a lack of warmth, I think because you have to get into that character, and obviously it's a cold and suppressed setting, and he's a he's a dark, brooding man. But I think there has to be a warmth and appeal there. It's a it's a layer that's just missing. I don't think it's missing from the Batman character. I think it's missing from the Christian the Christian Bale character, human being. I just think it's not there. I think there's a very there's like a patina on his acting skills. And he's quite a great actor, but I think he just doesn't have that warmth and appeal that Michael Keaton does actually have a sort of warmth and appeal to him. And I think that I would love to brainstorm who would have made a better, who who do we think would have made a better Bruce Wayne in these films, in these three films, or just in general, but especially in these three films, since this is what we're discussing right now. What do you think? Can you think of any? I can't. I honestly couldn't think of anybody. And I, I thought about it for a while. You know, I will say, and I know that this is not going to be a popular opinion, and I'm not really, I would never vigorously defend it, but I thought Ben Affleck's rendition of Bruce Wayne, not Batman necessarily, but Bruce Wayne and Batman vs. Superman was certainly fine to me. Like, I, like I certainly him. liked it way more than I thought I would. Oh, I like him in the role. I would have never picked out Christian Bale as being a, a, a viable Batman, and I think he, it's, it's one of those characters where you just kind of have to present your options to me. The grounding aspect of great batman films and great batman storytelling is rarely batman himself and it's just that's just it's the villains yeah and the universe mm-hmm. you know the whole the supporting income. cast it's an ensemble that i think is really quite essential yeah no you're right jason bola says it's time to go mobile favorite quotes from each of the trilogy i i don't know that i would even be able to quote too many lines from the first two movies mm. but pretty much anything bane says in the third movie is like some of my favorite he's stuff. pretty quotable i don't see these movies as being utterly quotable though i don't really either but Lucius has some fun lines. He's a fun character. But I can't think of any off the top of my head right now. Yeah. We kind of answered this already, but Jonathan Barnett and 
Ian Dimitru asked a similar thing, which is, who is your favorite, who is the more memorable villain, basically? Hardy's Bane or Ledger's Joker? I think we kind of already answered that. I think Dagan and I have a disagreement on that. I think the obvious answer and the obvious majority answer is, is Ledger's Joker. But I don't want people to sleep on Hardy's Bane. I think that with time and distance from what happened to Heath Ledger and kind of seeing the movie as an individual film, I think people will warm up and I think already have somewhat warmed up to Bane over time. I think I think the vitriol towards that character was much more heated in the moment than it's been in the six years since it's come out. I think that's well said. Yeah. Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker is a really tough act to follow. I like that Bane was a different it was a different actor for a different role in a different direction in it you know, it worked, you know. I do have a couple of quotes that I wrote down. Okay. This is a Harvey Dent quote, actually, I think. You either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah, that's a famous I mean, one, that's, yeah. how can you go wrong with that quote? And uh, I have my favorite Alfred line, which actually gets me very choked up every time I see this. He says, I won't bury you. I've buried enough members of the Wayne family. Just the way he says it, the context of the scene, you know, and the fact that it ends the conversation. And just Michael Caine's, you know, the fact that his eyes are welling up and he's getting choked up. It's like, oh, man, it's like, oh. I love the relationship between Alfred and Bruce. I actually wish it was explored a little more. I don't think it was necessary to. I think I'm just inherently grasping at anything warmth of warmth in the movie because of Christian Bale. And I, I know I'm being very hard on Christian Bale, but I think I'm just kind of grasping at straws with the warmth. And that's some of it in the movie that you could kind of, you know, you're kind of trying to warm yourself by that fire because, you know, it's going to be cold for the rest of the movie, you know. Yeah, I, well, I think, you know, Christian Bale does have a coldness to him. I, I can't help but shake. We all have our moments. We've all done embarrassing and terrible things, actually. But the Christian Bale, I don't know what film it was, but that leaked footage of him when he was like, oh, going it was fucking, on Terminator. Yeah, when he was going nuts yeah. on people. On the crew. Was like, I think that kind of shows the kind of person he might be. I forgot about that. And I just, I've worked with that crews. Was I, not that I've been on a $100 million set, but I've worked with crews at live shows and at E3 where people are working really hard and it's a really, really tough job to audio engineer or film and stuff like that. And I've had my disagreements with people that have done that stuff before, but you always found me knocking on the door and walking in when I was done at the end of the day thanking everyone for their work. You know, right, right, leaving. right, right, right. I would never probably see them again. They'd never see me again. These hired for, you know, hired gun crews. But I've been on the other <laughs> side. I've been in the other side of, on the other side of production, which Christian Bale apparently hasn't. And it's fucking daunting, dude. And if someone walks behind your scene and accidentally, that's, do you think that the sound guy meant to be in the shot? You fucking fool. Right. Like you're really splitting the atom oh over there God. acting. Give me a break. I forgot about that tirade. Now I got. Go I lost a lot that. of respect for him when I when I. Not that yeah, I, you know, I'm sure everybody did. Now I think he's had great roles, but I just I, I can see where the coldness. I think he seems like a cold dude generally. Yeah. Weird casting, but whatever. Ian has an interesting question. He says, how do you guys think the DC film universe looks right now if Nolan never stepped away? Mm. Do you think he could have introduced a more tame, slightly more believable version of Superman? I don't know what you're going to do to Superman to make him cool for me, but here's what I think about this. Mm. If DC and Warner let Christopher Nolan walk away when they could have retained him to do more films with just and just thrown money at him, then they made a massive error. But I think that the idea that Christopher Nolan was just going to stay wrapped up in this shit forever and not do his own films is probably not true. And people have to remember that he did movies in between each of these movies. That's correct. So it wasn't like he was just a mercenary. He did The Prestige in between Batman Begins That's and The right. Dark Knight. He did Inception in Inception. between The Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. And then right after Dark Knight Rises, he did Interstellar. So it's not like he... Mm. And then he did Dunkirk. So it's not like he wanted to be in this in this realm. But if I were them, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall or just know... Like, didn't, did you try to keep him? Because he did for Batman what no one is ever going to do for Marvel. 
And no, no matter how good people think those movies are, they're not films. And it, and it's like if it's going to cost you a retainer of a nine figure retainer, literally, to keep this dude for a long period of time, pay him. You know, look what he did for you. Look, look what he he took fifty million dollar budgets and made. You guys, enormous amounts of money. The 31st and 19th most highest grossing films of all time are Batman movies because of him. And so I, I often wonder about that. DC is in terrible shape. But they have, ironically, on the top end of the sphere, have the best movies and then just a shit ton of bad movies. You have to believe that they tried to do what they could to keep I'm them. sure they did. I mean, I hate to break it down in such a simple fashion, but Christopher Nolan this is just one of the guys that gets it. He's one of the guys that you could put in that's going to inherently attach themselves to something and just do it justice there's not a lot of people that are inherently connected that could actually connect themselves to something and make it work but it's very there are there are guys though there are smart guys out there that could sort of shepherd a brand and ground it and steep it in a style and make it work and make it appealing you know i think of guys like brad bird at pixar and i think of guys like bruce tim I mean, Bruce Tim is already so heavily associated with these things. Why not get this? This man knows these things inside and out. He knows the history. He knows every iteration. He's a wonderful writer. He has a natural sense of appeal. He's a designer. I mean, he's a guy that's already done it. You know, just I think there's a inherently. I hate to say this, but I think there's inherently a pre, a really uh, a sort of. I think there's sort of a, a notion to go against people that work in animation and there's sort of a, you know, there's a, there's a vibe of like, well, these guys can't do it. They're in animation, but Bruce Tim would be a wonderful choice for this. Brad Bird would be too. Of course he's over at Pixar, but you know, I don't think there should be a notion against those people in animation. I think Bruce Tim could do what Christopher Nolan did in live action. And maybe he, maybe he's been asked and turned it down, but there are other guys, you know, do you think that, and this could be for another movie, and I'm not, again, I'm not super educated on, on any of this stuff, but the DC lineup just does not appeal to me whatsoever. There is nothing appealing about Wonder Woman to me. There is nothing appealing about Superman to me. There is nothing appealing about Aquaman yeah. or Cyborg or whatever these these various characters are. I just don't care. You don't like them. And I, I know that people do, but I just, I think that working against DC inherently is that they don't have anything that's that interesting compared to what Marvel's like rolling out. And Marvel just seems under Disney's tutelage just seems to be way more organized in how they're rolling things out. They yeah. really should have stuck with Christopher Nolan's universe. And even if Christopher Nolan wasn't going to stay there, continue on this, this path and, and make it and ground it and make it believable. Batman yeah. versus Superman was embarrassing. dude. Yeah. It's, it's like, it was really bad. It's, I like the casting for Superman. I'm sorry. I don't know his name. Henry Cavill. I, I like him That's as him, right? Clark. Right. I, I, I think he's good, but it's, yeah, there's something missing. It's it feel again, it feels something that, you know, it's a it's it's such a mixture of things instead of trying to just be one thing and having a co- it's being surrend- you know, kind of embraced by a coherent vision. It feels like it's trying to be too many things or it doesn't know what it wants to be and that's people get it. People that can't even articulate that, you know, grandmothers and people that have nothing to do with the entertainment industry and you know, they go to the movies that you could inherently feel that as a human being. You know, and that's why these movies aren't doing well. And that's why Justice League is, hasn't been good yet, you know, and stuff like that. You know, I thought the Justice League trailer was those initial trailers are pretty promising. You know, I think Ben Affleck is as Batman works for me. It's perfectly not. He's, he's perfectly fine. He's not the problem. Not the problem at all. 
you know. He really so. isn't. It, it, like, I, I think a lot of people scapegoated him as being a problem. I'm like, dude, that's the least of your worries. I, I agree. I think that's well well put. Like, Ben Affleck <laughs> is a great actor and, and <laughs> the, probably the least of your worries in terms of why this isn't working out too well for you guys. It might have to do with the fact that he's fighting a dude in tights that is impervious to everything. That's a really interesting character. Yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing about Superman that makes him inherently uninteresting. It's just it's just so boring. Yeah. Like it's just so boring. But I'm also not into the outrageous mutants and all this kind. I'm just like, I don't the know, man, stuff. I, it it was cool at one time. Like I actually kind of have a soft spot for Spider-Man. And Spider-Man's a good character. I like, you know, Peter Parker and I like that he's a young kid and yeah. and you know, he's from Queens and it's 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 cool in that regard, but you know, I'm I'm authentically surprised that the bottom hasn't fallen out of this stuff yet. It's gonna it's gotta happen. Like I look at I, every time I see something, like Venom looks pretty cool, and you know I know people like the Ant Man movies and and all, but I'm like I don't get it. I don't know why you would want. It's the same the way I feel about Star Wars, about how they're running Star Wars into the ground. Yes, it's like don't you want? Wouldn't you rather have like three phenomenal Marvel movies in ten years, like rather. really phenomenal films? Yeah. Or do you really want like one every six months? Yeah, oversaturation is a problem. And it's I'll be interested to see how it all turns out, Dagan, because it seems like Disney with Star Wars is getting it. They basically like they basically frozen all of the spinoffs. I just don't understand why nerd culture doesn't demand more. Yeah, I it, agree. It's a, it's a little frustrating to me, and I know that a lot of people disagree with me. And I'm not trying to be arrogant or say that I have the phenomenal taste and that my taste is the the marquee taste. But I don't understand why you just don't demand more. Stop people giving them your quantity. money. They're forking money over. I don't know. They want quantity. A lot of these people, I think, can't relate. Yeah, no, me either. I'd and rather so have a lot of people can't. I'd rather have one amazing ten-hour video game than a mediocre one-hundred-hour video game. Oh, of course. So if that's the case, then why would you want a hundred mediocre movies when you can have it's three well, great? It's movies? Well put. You know, absolutely. Like I don't want to read a book just to read a book. I want to read a great book. Otherwise, don't waste my time. Absolutely. Mike C. or Say, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Mike, says, how do you feel about Bane as the villain in the third movie? Did you like the connection to the first part? Or do you have preferred a different Bat villain, such as the Riddler? We talked a little bit about this, Dagan, but I wanted to bring this question up specifically because the third movie does connect intimately to the first movie in the way that the second movie doesn't. And I'm curious how you feel about that. It's a full circle thing with Ra's al Ghul, with Bane, and with, with Christian Bale in that movie. Yeah. Do you did you feel like that was necessary? I actually kind of felt like it was an unnecessary component to make the movie work. I don't I don't know that it was really essential to tie it in so intimately. That's interesting. You felt like it was forced. Well, I felt like it was a way for them to say, and maybe it was intentional, and maybe it was the way they were going to do it with with Joker. But it seemed like it was saying like, no, there's a plan here. Like we're actually going to connect this movie to the one before you ever even knew who the Joker was. Yeah. And I felt like that was a little weird and and maybe a little ham-handed. I see what you mean by that. And it might have had to do with the the, the fact of the original plans which changed possibly changed when Heath Ledger passed. But yeah, no, I didn't feel like it was inherently forced, but I do see what you're saying. I don't think it was necessary, but it also might have been something might have come to light during the filming or at some point along on the production of the third film where they knew it was going to wrap up and they felt inherently like they had to, that they had to put the bow on it. It seems a little antithetical to what the way Nolan usually operates. He doesn't seem like that type of guy who has to tie it up with a pretty string and ribbon and everything like that. But who are we making fun of that does that? Oh, uh, Steven well, Spielberg. Spielberg does that. I mean, Spielberg, that's why I think so many filmmakers are critical of him. You could, Spielberg is obviously brilliant in many ways, but very <laughs> I, sentimental. I wish we could remember the scene we were making fun of where he's like, do you get it? Do you get it? Right. He keeps, he just keeps going and yeah. going. I think it was in indie, actually. 
Justin Mikowski has the last thing that I want to bring up here. He asks about villains. A lot of people are asking about what villains you want, but he does say that what he would have loved to see was the Riddler played by Guy Pierce, which would have been interesting, That's or interesting. the Penguin played by Stephen Graham, who plays Al Capone on Boardwalk Empire. So, oh, he would have been a good Penguin. So that would be, and he was saying with like the Cockney accent and stuff. Talking like about that. the Penguin again, I would like to see what was the first villain again that Justin mentioned? The Riddler, Guy Pierce. I'd like to see the Riddler played by Guy Fieri. Guy Fieri. <laughs> <laughs> How's that sound? Diners driving triple D's. <laughs> triple D's. You know, this comes up every once in a while. I love Guy Fieri. I feel like people make fun of him because of his fashion, like his fashion, and yeah, he's pretty. Appealing. He seems like a, I would love to sit down. The and sunglasses have a beer. on the back of yeah. his head might be a little much. For me. I'd, I'd love to have a beer with him. <laughs> he has a restaurant right in Midtown. Yeah, he has one chain in, of restaurants. He has a he's has one in Napa, I think, too. Totally an aside, but I always felt like like why are people making fun of this guy? He seems right. like a perfectly nice man. Yeah, he seems very cool. Why are right? so judgmental? It's like so weird. I love going into a restaurant and seeing that they've been there. And we have quite a few in our area in PA that he's been through, you know, it's the greasy spoon type places. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. Yeah, come on. And cast him in as a Batman villain. Give I know, this Pat, guy a shot. The chef. <laughs> Give him a shot on the big screen. The, <laughs> the they, chef. they should have Steven Seagal as the cook. <laughs> I'm just a cook. <laughs> that's how it starts. He's <laughs> like a knife on his on his waist or something like that. <laughs> Dig, that's all I have. Do you have anything else you want to add before we get into well, the Well, you know what? Round? We forgot to do our change in the subject. Oh, that's right. Oh, okay. But, you know, we'll just do it at the end. Who cares? Okay. What do, right? I, what, do I, what do I care? We'll just, we'll keep it really, well, this time we'll keep it very relevant to the Batman property. And we'll talk about Sno- Snoopy. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your reflections on Snoopy. He's I don't know. Have a, a I don't know anything about Snoopy other than. He has the little yellow bird friend. Yeah, Woodstock. Woodstock, right. And he seems lazy. Is that true? Or he sleeps? He sleeps, right. Well, whose dog? Who does he belong to? Is he in the Peanuts? Yeah, he's in Peanuts. Yeah, okay. So I don't know who... who... He's Chuck's dog. Oh, okay. He's Charlie Brown's dog. Oh, wow. Because Snoopy was I don't know anything about that universe. By the th- I feel like the by the peanuts, time you the were peanuts born... Peanuts universe. <laughs> so the Peanuts universe. <laughs> the Peanuts cinematic universe. <laughs> well, you know what? They did. Blue Sky did do the animated movie. And it's quite good, actually. What's the appeal of, of that whole universe? I don't really get it. The Peanuts... Well, you know, it's a, it's the most famous comic of all time. It's the most... We'll get into this in, a, in another topic that we're going to do this round a little bit. But it's the most heavily merchandised comic strip property of all time. I think... Sparky Schultz, uh, Charles Schultz made like forty million a year. That's his whole media empire, and I think that wasn't in a, that was in addition to his salary as a cartoonist. Good for him. That was just merchandise. Good for him. So that's Snoopy. But I do feel like Snoopy and just the Peanuts in general, even though it's a syndicated strip and it still runs. I think by the time you were born in the mid '80s, it wasn't even a thing anymore. You had because we had like you know we had the the Peanuts. Holiday specials that, that I remember, with, yeah, right. That's where we the Charlie the, Brown Christmas tree thing comes from. Charlie right? Brown Christmas, yeah, the yeah the Charlie, but the like the shitty tree because yeah, we had a tree like tree. that at, at home that we would call yeah. the Charlie Brown tree, and that's why mom and dad called it that. Yeah, because we would wrap, wrap lights around it. It was like the really pitiful, pathetic right tree, right? And then we had the Snoopy snow cone machine, right? I remember that, right. which my son is like really into. They put that back out in the stores, and then we had, you know, now Blue Sky did the Peanuts movie animated film, which is actually quite. It's quite good. They did a good job on that movie, but um, okay. So that's your reflection on. I mean, Snoopy. I don't. I mean, do you Snoop. have any? Do you have any additional reflection on it? No. I, I don't really understand the whole. Grav- I don't understand the draw to it at all. But it's from a different era. No one really introduced me to it. I just know anything about it from passively seeing it. Our sister Dana had a puppy 
nicknamed Puppy. Right. I was thinking about that puppy recently. It was like her security blanket. Right. Looked like a yellow version of Snoopy. It, it wasn't Snoopy. It Ratty was like an off brand. It was like a knockback. A knockoff, not a knockback. Right. A knockoff of Snoopy. It was yellow, and I cut his nose off when we were in high school and laid the dog on her. It was like dangling by a thread. The little, the little thread nose was hanging by a thread. So I just cut it off and then laid it on the pillow so it looked like it was still attached. So when she would pick up puppy, the nose would just be on the pillow. <laughs> Laying on the pillow, and I you did. Were, you were really nice to each other. I was a very nice kid. <laughs> you got you and Tana got along really well in high school. <laughs> Stories I won't even tell. Then I just heard, you know, I kind of forgot about it. And then when she got home three or four hours later, I just hear, take it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I wonder, she must still have that stuffed animal somewhere. I think she has it still. Puppy? I hope so. You had a blanket, right? Herb? Herb. That was My like security. Didn't blanket. Uncle Mike offer to give you like a hundred dollars if you threw it in the fireplace? Yeah, he would constantly like offer me money to get rid of it because I had it. <laughs> I had this blanket up until college. My security blanket, much like Linus, if we're gonna get into the peanuts. <laughs> and uh, my friend inadvertently threw it. My friend who I grew up with in New York, we were college roommates as well together, oddly enough. And he threw it. We lived in an apartment building. He threw it in the, down the garbage chute once by accident. Supposedly it was by accident. I don't know why he would have done it otherwise. And that's how I lost her. I could have made money from Uncle Mike. I just remember the stories of like Uncle Mike being like, I'll give you $100. You throw oh, it yeah. He would just be, we would just be sitting on the couch. I'll give you 50 bucks right now. We weren't even talking about that. You know, we could be in the middle of a conversation about football or something. He'd be like, I'll give you 50 bucks right now to get rid of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like 16 years old. <laughs> oh, Snoopy. Uh, that's good, good times. Should we do a lightning round? Lightning round. Here we go. This is an easy one. It's not too big. Keep it as brief. That's what she said. <laughs> That's definitely what she said. <laughs> All right. Lightning round, Dark Knight. Here we go. Batman or Robin? Batman. Catwoman or Batgirl? Catwoman. Nicholson Joker or Ledger Joker? Ledger. Good answer. Keaton or Bale? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I guess I would go with Bale just because... He is in the movies that are better. You like the movies. Yeah. Batman or Superman? I know the answer to this Batman, one. Batman, please. I'll take anything over Superman. <laughs> Alfred or Lucius? Alfred. Batmobile or the Batwing? Batmobile. I kind of agree. Joker or Bane? Bane. Okay. If you could have one, the power of flight or the or super strength? What's your superhero ability? Flight. Yeah, me too. Now, between the power of flight or invisibility, what would you choose? Flight. Yeah, it's it's a, it's, it's. Imagine that. Imagine just being able to exi- just zoom into the sky and go somewhere else. It's completely irresistible. I know. Uh, Mad Max or Bane. So we're talking about Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. <sighs> you know, Gibson is always going to be the quintessential Mad Max to me. Oh, so, so I, I would go with Bane. You're going to go with Bane. Michelle Pfeiffer or Anne Hathaway? It's kind of a toughie, isn't it? That is. They were, you know, they were both good. I'll go with Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Christopher Nolan loves Anne Hathaway. Yeah. And and Tom Hardy. (laughs) Yeah. They're sort of, and JGL, right? They're sort of like continuing cast members in his films. Yep. They roll with him. Marvel or DC? I mean, we're talking about the movie, Cinematic Universe now. I mean,. Marvels is better, I would assume. The cinematic universe is certainly better. Yeah, yeah. Disney's, it's odd what Disney's doing with that. They, I mean, they have to walk a very fine line because they're trying to make it appealing for everybody, and I respect the difficulty of that task. But 
I don't know. It's not popping for me. Okay, realistic, gritty, dark portrayals or cartoony, silly, lighthearted portrayals. They both have a place, but I would prefer the former. And we're going to go Burton or Nolan. Nolan. Although, you know, shout out to Burton, too. I did watch the Kevin Smith thing you were telling me to watch, by the way. Oh, did you see that? Where he was basically making fun of it, like... Major beef between those two. It's funny, though, because like he had no idea that Burton wrote that script that he was shitting on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because he wrote... What was it? The first... It was Superman. The, the initial Superman and he script. Was, and he was talking about how, yeah, like that's, he went in there and the Superman script was fucking terrible. And they kept calling him in over and over again <laughs> to tell like more and more people higher up the chain. But no one ever told him for like a year that it was Burton's film. <laughs> that's kind of their fault, not his. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah Kevin yeah. Smith's a funny dude. He's not a mean-spirited guy. No. No, we will do. Uh, I I will. We'll work one in. I think we could probably do two different ones on him. Yeah, probably like Clerks through Chasing Amy, and then probably Dogma through whatever. That's a good idea. Something to break like it that. up that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But that's it for our episode of Knockback about the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. We hope you guys enjoyed it. You guys voted for it at Patreon.com/slash/CollinsLastStand. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for supporting us over there. Remember, you get early access to the show, the right to vote and submit topic ideas. And this, by the way, uh, these these and similar rights spread across many of my shows. So SideQuest, the video game YouTube channel, Sacred Symbols, the number one PlayStation podcast in the world, according to iTunes, and Fireside <laughs> Chats, the eclectic uh, conversation series. Your investment in Colin's Last Stand on Patreon gets you access, early access and perks for all of those shows. So it's a pretty good bang for your buck. Not bad. I would argue that my Patreon gives more bang for your buck than almost any Patreon I've ever seen, actually. There you go. And I will be interested to see what you guys think of that proclamation. I like it, my friend. Especially because I'm one person. <laughs> I'm just one man. You're just one man. I'm just a man. I'm just a cook. Why don't you go out with a uh, a Bane? A Bane? Okay. Perhaps he's wondering why you'd shoot a man before throwing him out of a plane. <laughs> Pretty good. Not bad. I can do... The first part of it is better than the last. The, like... I, 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 for some reason, I can say the first part of the line much better. Perhaps he's wondering why you'd shoot a man. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. It's pretty good. I like. They it. should have hired me to do Bane. Pretty, 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 pretty. <laughs> Would it be painful for you? <laughs> there you go. There's your quote. <laughs> I love that that line. It's so awesome. All right, that's it for us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. you so much for your time. Wake up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just dozed off for a second. No, it's early. We got. I got a lot of sleep last night. You did. You slept very well. I feel good. That's great. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan supported over at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon. And I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Ahmed Alloways, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Alex Cabrera, William Caldwell, Luis Cancado, Matthew Canoy, William O'Carroll, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Chris Cochran, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amore, Daniel Del Nikos, Travis DePew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, 
Kelly, Eric Fickenbeiner, Connor Gashian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Glassford, Nick Goblersh, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Nick Gustafson, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Wyatt Henry, Josh Yeager, Clarence Johnson, Paul Joyce, Greg Julefs, Jeremy Key, Kevin Komaki, Taylor C. Laudrin, Jackson Lastica, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, A. Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Brandon Reed, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, German Sadu, Riley Smith, Jared Stuave, Alexander Suarez, Stephen Summingit, Ahmad Tamar, Tam Tran, Esteban Valentin, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, and Donk2015.